Section 11, Part 1 of Section 4 of the Introduction of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blexton. Book 1. Introduction. Section 4. Part 1. Section the Fourth. On the Countries Subject to the Laws of England. The Kingdom of England, over which our municipal laws have jurisdiction, includes not, by the common law, either Wales, Scotland, or Ireland, or any other part of the King's dominions except the territory of England only. And yet, the civil laws and local customs of this territory do now obtain, in part or in all, with more or less restrictions, in these and many other adjacent countries, of which it will be proper first to take a review, before we consider the kingdom of England itself, the original and proper subject of these laws. Wales had continued independent of England, unconquered and uncultivated, in the primitive pastoral state which Caesar and Tacitus ascribe to Britain in general, for many centuries. Even from the time of the hostile invasions of the Saxons, when the ancient and Christian inhabitants of the island retired to those natural entrenchments for protection from their pagan visitants, but when these invaders themselves were converted to Christianity, and settled into regular and potent governments, this retreat of the ancient Britons grew every day narrower. They were overrun by little and little, gradually driven from one fastness to another, and by repeated losses, abridged their own wild independence. Very early in our history, we find their princes doing homage to the crown of England, till at length, in the reign of Edward I, who may justly be styled the conqueror of Wales, the line of their ancient princes were abolished, and the king of England's eldest son became, as a matter of course, their titular prince, the territory of Wales being then entirely annexed to the dominion of the crown of England, or as the statute of Brutland expresses it, terra valie cominculis suis prius regi jure feudali subjecta, of which homage was the sign, iam in proprietatis dominium totaliter et cum integritate conversa est, et coronae regni angliae tanquam pas corporis eiustem annexa et unita by the statute also of Wales, very material alterations were made in diverse parts of their laws, so as to reduce them nearer to the English standard, especially in the forms of their judicial proceedings. But they still retained very much of their original policy, particularly their role of inheritance, viz., that their lands were divided equally among all the issue male, and did not descend to the eldest son alone. By other subsequent statutes, 
their provincial immunities were still further abridged. But the finishing stroke of their independency was given by the Statute 27, Henry VIII, Chapter 26, which, at the same time, gave the utmost advancement to their civil prosperity, by admitting them to a thorough communication of laws with the subjects of England. Thus were this brave people gradually conquered into the enjoyment of true liberty, being insensibly put upon the same footing, and made fellow-citizens with their conquerors. A generous method of triumph, which the Republic of Rome practised with great success, till she reduced all Italy to her obedience, by admitting the vanquished states to partake of the Roman privileges. It is enacted by this statute 27, Henry VIII, 1, that the dominion of Wales shall be for ever united to the kingdom of England, 2, that all Welshmen born shall have the same liberties as other the king's subjects, 3, the lands in Wales shall be inheritable according to the English tenures and rules of descent, 4, that the laws of England and no other shall be used in Wales, besides many other regulations of the police of this principality, and the statute 34 and 35 Henry VIII, chapter 26, confirms the same, adds further regulations, divides it into twelve shares, and, in short, reduces it into the same order in which it stands at this day, differing from the kingdom of England in only a few particulars, and those too of the nature of privileges, such as having courts within itself, independent of the process of Westminster Hall, and some other immaterial peculiarities, hardly more than are to be found in many counties of England itself. The kingdom of Scotland, notwithstanding the union of the crowns on the ascension of their King James the Sixth, to that of England, continued an entirely separate and distinct kingdom for above a century, though an union had been long projected, which was judged to be more easy to be done, as both kingdoms were anciently under the same government, and still remained a very great resemblance, though far from an identity, in their laws. By an act of Parliament, 1. James I, Chapter 1, it is declared that these two mighty, famous, and ancient kingdoms were formerly one. And Sir Edward Cook observes how marvellous a conformity there was, not only in the religion and language of the two nations, but also in their ancient laws, the descent of the crown, their parliaments, their titles of nobility, their offices of state and of justice, their writs, their customs, and even the language of their laws. Upon which account he supposes the common law of each to have been originally the same, especially as their most ancient and authentic book, called Regiam Magistratum, and containing the rules of their ancient common law, is extremely similar to that of Glanville, which contains the principles of ours, as it stood in the reign of Henry the Second. And the many diversities subsisting between the two laws at present may be well enough accounted for. 
from a diversity of practice in two large and uncommunicating jurisdictions, and from the acts of two distinct and independent parliaments, which have in many points altered and abrogated the old common law for both kingdoms. However, Sir Edward Cook and the politicians of that time conceived great difficulties in carrying on the projected union, but these were at length overcome, and the great work was happily effected in 1707. 5. Anne, when twenty-five articles of union were agreed to by the parliaments of both nations, the purport of the most considerable being as follows. 1. That on the 1st of May, 1707, and for ever after, the kingdoms of England and Scotland shall be united into one kingdom, by the name of Great Britain. 2. The succession to the monarchy of Great Britain shall be the same as was before settled with regard to that of England. 3. The United Kingdom shall be represented by one Parliament. 4. There shall be a communication of all rights and privileges between the subjects of both kingdoms except where it is otherwise agreed. 9. When England raises two million pounds by a land tax, Scotland shall raise forty-eight thousand pounds. 16. 17. The standards of the coin, of weights, and of measures shall be reduced to those of England throughout the United Kingdoms. 18. The laws relating to trade customs, and the excise shall be the same in Scotland as in England, but all the other laws of Scotland shall remain in force, but alterable by the Parliament of Great Britain. Yet, with this caution, that laws relating to public policy are alterable at the discretion of the Parliament. Laws relating to private rights are not to be altered but for the evident utility of the people of Scotland. 22. Sixteen peers are to be chosen to represent the peerage of Scotland in Parliament, and forty-five members to sit in the House of Commons. 23. The sixteen peers of Scotland shall have all privileges of Parliament, and all peers of Scotland shall be peers of Great Britain, and rank next after those of the same degree at the time of the Union, and shall have all privileges of peers, except sitting in the House of Lords and voting on the trial of a peer. These are the principle of the twenty-five Articles of Union, which are ratified and confirmed by Statute 5 and Chapter 8, in which statute there are also two Acts of Parliament recited, the one of Scotland, whereby the Church of Scotland and also the four universities of that kingdom, are established for ever, and all succeeding sovereigns are to take an oath inviolably to maintain the same. The other, of England, 5, and chapter 6, whereby the Acts of Uniformity of 13 Elizabeth and 13 Charles II, except as the same had been altered by Parliament at that time, and all other acts then in force for the preservation of the Church of England are declared perpetual, 
and it is stipulated that every subsequent king and queen shall take an oath inviolably to maintain the same within England, Ireland, Wales, and the town of Berwick upon Tweed. And it is enacted that these two acts, quote, shall forever be observed as fundamental and essential conditions of the Union. End quote. Upon these articles, an act of union, it is to be observed, one, that the two kingdoms are now so inseparably united that nothing can ever disunite them again, but an infringement of those points which, when they were separate and independent nations, it was mutually stipulated, shall be, quote, fundamental and essential conditions of the union, end quote. Two, that whatever else may be deemed, quote, fundamental and essential conditions, end quote, the preservation of the two churches, of England and Scotland, in the same state that they were in at the time of the Union, and the maintenance of the acts of uniformity which establish our common prayer, are expressly declared so to be. 3. That, therefore, any alteration in the constitutions of either those churches, or in the liturgy of the Church of England, would be an infringement of these, quote, fundamental and essential conditions, end quote, and greatly endanger the Union. 4. That the municipal laws of Scotland are ordained to be still observed in that part of the island, unless altered by Parliament, and, as the Parliament has not yet thought proper, except in a few instances, to alter them, they still, with regard to the particulars unaltered, continue in full force. Wherefore, the municipal or common laws of England are, generally speaking, of no force or validity in Scotland, and, of consequence, in the ensuing commentaries, we shall have very little occasion to mention, any further than sometimes by way of illustration, the municipal laws of that part of the United Kingdoms. The town of Berwick-upon-Tweed, though subject to the crown of England ever since the conquest of it in the reign of Edward IV, is not part of the kingdom of England, nor subject to the common law, though it is subject to all acts of Parliament, being represented by burgesses therein, and therefore it was declared by statute 20 George II, chapter 42, that where England only is mentioned in any act of Parliament, the same notwithstanding shall be deemed to comprehend the dominion of Wales and the town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. But the general law there used is the Scots law, and the ordinary process of the courts of Westminster Hall is there of no authority. As to Ireland, that is still a distinct kingdom, though a dependent, subordinate kingdom. It was only entitled the Dominion or Lordship of England, and the king's style was no other than Dominus Ibernie, Lord of England, till the thirty-third year of King Henry the Eighth, when he assumed the title of king, which is recognized by Act of Parliament, 35, Henry the Eighth, 
Chapter 3 But, as Scotland and England are not one and the same kingdom, and yet differ in their municipal laws, so England and Ireland are, on the other hand, distinct kingdoms, and yet, in general, agree in their laws. The inhabitants of Ireland are, for the most part, descended from the English, who planted it as a kind of colony, after the conquest of it by King Henry the Second, at which time they carried over the English laws along with them. And as Ireland, thus conquered, planted, and governed, still continues in a state of dependence, it must necessarily conform to, and be obliged by such laws as the superior state thinks proper to prescribe. At the time of this conquest, the Irish were governed by what they called the Brehan Law, so styled from the Irish name of judges, who were denominated Brehans. But King John, in the twelfth year of his reign, went into Ireland, and carried over with him many able sages of the law, and there, by his letters patent, in right of the dominion of conquest, is said to have ordained and established that Ireland shall be governed by the laws of England. Which letters patent Sir Edward Cook apprehends to have been there confirmed in Parliament. But to this ordinance many of the Irish were averse to conform, and still stuck to their Brehan law, so that both Henry the Third and Edward the First were obliged to renew the injunction, and at length, in a Parliament holden at Kilkenny, forty Edward the Third, under Lionel, Duke of Clarence, the then Lieutenant of England, the Brehan Law was formally abolished, it being unanimously declared to be indeed no law, but a lewd custom crept in of later times. And yet, even in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, the wild natives still kept and preserved their Brehan Law, which is described to have been, quote, a rule of right unwritten, but delivered by tradition from one to another, in which oftentimes there appeared great shew of equity in determining the right between party and party, but in many things repugnant quite both to God's law and man's. End quote the latter part of which character is alone allowed it, under Edward I and his grandson. But, as Ireland was a distinct dominion, and had parliaments of its own, it is to be observed that though the immemorial customs, or common law, of England were made the rule of justice in Ireland also, yet no acts of the English parliament, since the twelfth of King John, extended into that kingdom, unless it were specially named, or included under general words, such as, quote, within any of the king's dominions, end quote. And this is particularly expressed, and the reason given in the year-book, quote, Ireland hath a parliament of its own, and maketh and altereth laws, and our statutes do not bind them, because they do not send representatives to our parliament, but their persons are the king's subjects, like as the inhabitants of Calais, Gascony, and Guyenne, which they continued under the king's subjection. 
End quote. The method made use of in England, as stated by Sir Edward Cook, of making statutes in their parliaments, according to Poyning's law, of which hereafter is this. 1. The Lord Lieutenant and Council of Ireland must certify to the King under the Great Seal of Ireland the acts proposed to be passed. 2. The King and Council of England are to consider, approve, alter, or reject the said acts, and certify them back again under the Great Seal of England, and then, 3. They are to be proposed, received, or rejected in the Parliament of Ireland. By this means nothing was left to the Parliament of England, but a bare negative, or power of rejecting, not of proposing any law. But the usage now is, that bills are often framed in either House of Parliament under the denomination of heads for a bill or bills, and in that shape they are offered to the consideration of the Lord Lieutenant and Privy Council, who then reject them at pleasure, without transmitting them to England. But the Irish nation, being excluded from the benefits of the English statutes, were deprived of many good and profitable laws, made for the improvement of the common law, and the measure of justice in both kingdoms becoming thereby no longer uniform. Therefore, in the tenth year of Henry the Seventh, a set of statutes passed in Ireland, Sir Edward Poynings being then Lord Deputy, whence it is called Poynings' Law, by which it was, among other things, enacted, that all acts of Parliament before made in England shall be of force within the realm of Ireland. But, by the same rule that no laws made in England between King John's time and Poyning's law were then binding in Ireland, it follows that no acts of the English Parliament made since the tenth year of Henry the Seventh do now bind the people of Ireland unless specially named or included under general words. And on the other hand, it is equally clear that where Ireland is particularly named, or is included under general words, they are bound by such acts of Parliament. For this follows from the very nature and constitution of a dependent state, dependence being very little else, but an obligation to conform to the will or law of that superior person or state, upon which the inferior depends. The original and true ground of this superiority is the right of conquest, a right allowed by the law of nations, if not by that of nature, and founded upon a compact either expressly or tacitly made between the conqueror and the conquered, that if they will acknowledge the victor for their master, he will treat them for the future as subject, and not as enemies. But this state of dependence being almost forgotten, and ready to be disputed by the Irish nation, it became necessary some years ago to declare how that matter really stood, and therefore, by the statute 6, George I, chapter 5, it is declared that the kingdom of Ireland ought to be subordinate to, and dependent upon, 
the imperial crown of Great Britain, as being inseparably united thereto, and that the King's Majesty, with the consent of the Lords and Commons of Great Britain in Parliament, has power to make laws to bind the people of Ireland. Thus we see how extensively the laws of Ireland communicate with those of England, and indeed such communication is highly necessary, as the ultimate resort from the courts of justice in England is, as in Wales, to those in England, a writ of error, in the nature of an appeal, lying from the king's bench in Ireland to the king's bench in England, as the appeal from all other courts in England lies immediately to the House of Lords here. It being expressly declared, by the same statute, 6 George I, Chapter 5, that the peers of Ireland have no jurisdiction to affirm or reverse any judgments or decrees whatsoever. This propriety, and even necessity, in all inferior dominions of this Constitution, quote, that, though justice be in general administered by courts of their own, yet that the appeal in the last resort ought to be to the courts of the superior state, end quote, is founded upon these two reasons. 1. Because otherwise the law, appointed or permitted to such inferior dominion, might be insensibly changed within itself, without the assent of the superior. 2. Because otherwise judgments might be given to the disadvantage or diminution of the superiority, or to make the dependence to be only of the person of the king, and not of the crown of England. With regard to the other adjacent islands, which are subject to the crowns of Great Britain, some of them, as the Isle of Wight, of Portland, of Thanet, etc., are comprised within some neighboring county, and are therefore to be looked upon as annexed to the mother island, and part of the kingdom of England. But there are others, which require a more particular consideration. And first, the Isle of Man is a distinct territory from England, and is not governed by our laws, neither does any act of Parliament extend to it, unless it be particularly named therein. And then, an act of Parliament is binding there. It was formerly a subordinate feudatory kingdom, subject to the kings of Norway, then to King John and Henry III of England, afterwards to the kings of Scotland, and then again to the crown of England, and at length we find King Henry IV claiming the island by right of conquest, and disposing of it to the Earl of Northumberland, upon whose attainder it was granted, by the name of the Lordship of Man, to Sir John de Stanley, by letters patent, seven. Henry the Fourth. In his lineal descendants, it continued for eight generations, till the death of Ferdinando, Earl of Derby, A.D. 1594, when a controversy arose concerning the inheritance thereof, between his daughters, and William, his surviving brother, upon which, and a doubt that was started concerning the validity of the original patent, the island was seized into the Queen's hands and afterwards various grants were made of it by King James I, all which being expired or surrendered. It was granted afresh in seven James I, 
to William Earl of Derby, and the heir's male of his body, with remainder to his heir's general, which grant was the next year confirmed by Act of Parliament, with a restraint of the power of alienation by the said Earl and his issue male. On the death of James, Earl of Derby, A.D. 1735, the male line of Earl William failing, the Duke of Athol succeeded to the island as heir-general by a female branch. In the meantime, though the title of king has long been disused, the earls of Derby, as lords of man, had remained a sort of royal authority therein, by assenting or dissenting to laws, and exercising an appellate jurisdiction. Yet, though no English writ or process from the courts of Westminster was of any authority in man, an appeal lay from a decree of the lord of the island to the king of Great Britain in council. But the distinct jurisdiction of this little subordinate royalty being found inconvenient for the purposes of public justice and for the revenue, it affording a convenient asylum for debtors, outlaws, and smugglers, authority was given to the treasury by statute 12, George I, chapter 28, to purchase the interest of the then proprietors for the use of the crown, which purchase hath at length been completed in this present year, 1765, and confirmed by statutes 5, George III, chapter 26 and 39, whereby the whole island and all its dependencies, so granted as aforesaid, except the landed property of the Athol family, their manorial rights and emoluments, and the patronage of the bishopric, and other ecclesiastical benefices, are unalienably vested in the crown, and subjected to the regulations of the British excise and customs. The islands of Jersey, Guernsey, Sark, Alderney, and their appendages, were parcel of the Duchy of Normandy, and were united to the crown of England by the first princes of the Norman line. They are governed by their own laws, which are for the most part the ducal customs of Normandy, being collected in an ancient book of very great authority, intitulated Le Grand Costumier. The king's writ or process from the courts of Westminster, is therefore of no force, but his commission is. They are not bound by common acts of our Parliament, unless particularly named. All causes are originally determined by their own officers, the bailiffs and jurists of the islands, but an appeal lies from them to the king in council in the last resort. Besides these adjacent islands, our more distant plantations in America and elsewhere are also in some respects subject to the English laws. Plantations or colonies in distant countries are either such where the lands are claimed by right of occupancy only, by finding them desert and uncultivated, and peopling them from the mother country, or where, when already cultivated, they have been either gained by conquest or ceded to us by treaties. And both these rights are found upon the law of nature, or at least upon that of nations. But there is a difference between these two species of colonies, 
with respect to the laws by which they are bound. For it is held that if an uninhabited country be discovered and planted by English subjects, all the English laws are immediately there in force. For as the law is the birthright of every subject, so wherever they go, they carry their laws with them. But in conquered or ceded countries, that have already laws of their own, the king may indeed alter and change those laws, but, till he does actually change them, the ancient laws of the country remain, unless such as are against the law of God, as in the case of an infidel country. End of section 11